The issue of COVID-19 and how it affects our Oklahoma City Metro has been as fast moving as the virus itself. Beginning today, we will restrict and limit access uh, to the state capitol in order to try to stop uh, the spread of COVID-19. I'm issuing an executive order today strongly recommending Oklahomans follow all the guidance from the CDC to protect public health over the next 15 days. I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. And I'm Kayla Branch. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, Oklahoma's economy is still victim to oil and gas industry woes. And Oklahoma steps up its response to the coronavirus as local cases continue to increase. The Oklahoman staff has been advised to work from home as much as possible. But we believe consistency can be helpful during this stressful period, and we're dedicated to continuing to provide you analysis from our reporters on the stories you care about. So until we're all back at the office, our podcast will sound a bit different. We're asking reporters to join us from home, and we'll listen to the audio they send us. The audio will probably sound different from past episodes, but we'll do our best to bring this podcast to you while working remotely. Kayla, when we're not working, how are you passing the time during social distancing? Yeah, so actually this past weekend, I got to go camping, which was really fun, um, and Definitely a break from the panic that was going on, it seemed, in the metro area. And I was able to kind of watch from the outside looking in to see, you know, the situation develop and the responses that we saw on social media. I mean, this is what everyone is talking about. So um, I was out camping, though, and we took some hikes. We rode horses and we sat around a campfire, uh, read books. So it was a good time. Uh, But when we got home, you know, didn't really do too very much going out. Uh, stayed in, cleaned, you know, went through that closet junk drawer like they always say that you should. So what about you? I have not left my apartment since Thursday. <laughs> um, I have Lots of feet. been fully engaged in uh, self-isolation, social distancing, all that good stuff um, to pass the time when I am not working, which... Seems like on work days, work has consistently taken up most of my time. Uh, but on the weekends, uh, when I can't go anywhere, I started watching a couple new TV shows. One of them is a Spanish telenovela that I've started watching to practice Spanish. Um, and that's been great. And then I also started a puzzle and a podcast to listen to while working on the puzzle. Uh, So basically just doing whatever I can to spend all of my time indoors, where I think a lot of people are at at this point. Right. And we're definitely Uh, in one of those professions that you can work remotely. A lot of what we can do, you know, call people on the phone, send emails, you know, reading reports, checking numbers, watching live streamed meetings. So I think a lot of the Oklahoma staff is still fully engaged. Um, and I know there are other industries doing that too. But there's definitely been some talk about, you know, the folks who can't do that, who are required to be at work, to do their work. And so that's a whole whole other ball game. But, you know, one thing that has been really interesting that uh, – I don't know if it came by surprise that so many other states were doing this, but Oklahoma's public schools won't be in session for roughly three weeks in an attempt to contain the spread of COVID-19. 
Yeah, so this it seemed like signs were pointing this way because before that decision was made in Oklahoma on Monday, 35 other states had similarly closed all of their public schools. And if some states that hadn't closed all of their schools, they had large urban districts that went ahead and, and closed all their public schools Los Angeles, all the public schools in Los Angeles, for example, that's the second largest school district in the country. They shut down all of their public schools. So there was a precedent in the country for this, although it was still a pretty momentous decision because our our state superintendent of public instruction, Joy Hoffmeister, said she couldn't recall any other time when the state board of education had ordered all schools in the state to close. All accredited public schools to cease operations effective March 17th until April 6th, cessation of operations to include all instructional services, grading and extracurricular activities, staff development, trainings or conferences, but essential clerical and administrative activities such as business management, nutrition services and maintenance may continue. Um, And that includes all public schools, all charter schools, and all virtual charter schools. Uh, If they participated in certain summer school feeding programs, um, then, you know, the USDA gave two waivers to Oklahoma schools to continue serving school meals while uh, all the buildings are closed. So kids who depend on school meals to eat, which unfortunately is quite a number of children, um, they will be able to access food uh, even while their schools are closed. Uh, However, any operations on the school level is not is not going to happen right now. Um, basically, to think of, a good way to think about this is effectively an extension of, of spring break. Uh, schools are in the middle of spring break right now, so they're they're already closed as was scheduled in advance. But spring break will effectively continue until April sixth. And so when you think about it, you know, think about it in the way like that's why no teaching is is taking place. Is this is just an extension of that? Um, but the school year could extend or, you know, closures could extend as well. I mean, it's such a rapidly developing situation that they're going to continue to evaluate and and see whether it would be safe for children to come back. Um, And even if they do come back, the school year will probably be different. Um, You have state tests that are supposed to start on April 20th. And the state superintendent was very clear that they are not going to force children to take state tests if the conditions are so alternative to what usual testing conditions are. Um, So they have some flexibility and they will seek even greater flexibility through federal waivers to um, maybe alter that or push those farther down the line or determine whether kids need to take those tests. So you have these critical functions for schools that are going to change because of this, uh, even if they do come back uh, on on April seventh. Um, so this is this has been quite quite a challenge for them to adjust to. Because again, although there is precedent across the country, nobody in the state has ever really experienced this. As businesses, schools, and events shut down, religious services have faced similar closures. The Oklahoman's religion editor, Carla Hinton, has reported widespread cancellations of church services in the metro area. It seems that most churches in Oklahoma are actually 
canceling their services, uh, those in-person uh, gatherings that uh, most people here in the Bible Belt have come to uh, know and love, for lack of a better term. The Episcopalians, with 70 churches, uh, canceled in-person worship services. Uh, Crossings Community Church here in the Metro with 9,000 members, they have canceled services. The Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, this is a big one because for the most part, uh, Catholic churches don't cancel Mass, but they have canceled uh, in-person gatherings like their their Mass, and they represent 107 parishes in two-thirds of the state. The Tulsa Diocese just recently um, decided that it would follow suit with their 78 parishes that won't be gathering uh, for Mass uh, this Sunday or, or any uh, day in the uh, very near future. Um, Life.Church, which is, you know, arguably one of the largest churches in the country with 34 locations. Um, they have uh, many uh, locations here in Oklahoma and all of their uh, in-person worship services have been canceled for the uh, foreseeable future. All of these are temporary, but but um, this is certainly where we're at now. And last but not least, I can't forget the United Methodists. There are 486 uh, United Methodist churches. And uh, while their bishop, uh, Jimmy Nunn, has not given a blanket directive or blanket order for all United Methodist churches around the state to cancel their in-person worship service. He is strongly encouraging them to comply with the CDC and the uh, government uh, recommendations for these types of gatherings. This is an important season for for Christians because it is uh, Lent and, of course, uh, pretty soon uh, it will lead into Holy Week and Easter Sunday is April 12th. So, There were many activities and observances that are typically uh, conducted or planned uh, for for those observances. And, of course, Easter Sunday itself is is the holiest uh, week, uh, holiest day of the year for Christians. So that's it's very interesting. Right now, it looks like many pastors have not really talked about that particular issue because it's it may be a little too early. They may be hoping that things get better. As far as Passover, now Passover is uh, April 8th through April 16th, and this is a special time for for the Jewish community. Uh, Many times Passover Seder meals, which is an important part of uh, Passover, they are held uh, in homes. Most of the time they are held in homes, but most Jewish congregations will have a community Passover Seder. And now I'm wondering, you know, if this continues, if the coronavirus uh, crisis continues, Obviously, they're probably not going to have those uh, community meals. Um, it's just an important time for both the Christian and the Passover, com- the uh, Jewish communities in those terms. Now, what's interesting is the Muslim uh, community also has one of its uh, uh, big holidays or most holy uh, days or months in April. Ramadan, the Islamic holy month, which is one of the pillars of Islam, begins on April 23rd. So it's an interesting time that all three Abrahamic faiths will have, um, you know, rituals and observances. Now, for for Ramadan, um, this is their month of fasting where they they fast from uh, sundown to sunset. 
And what's interesting about that is those fasting, obviously, you can do that in your home. You can do that when you practicing social distancing or social isolation. The thing is, one of the uh, things about Ramadan that is interesting is that uh, most mosques will have uh, evening uh, prayer services where people uh, get together and, and they break their fast together with what they call the iftar dinner. And of course, if this continues, if the the pandemic continues and and we're all on this uh, social distancing isolation uh, situation, uh, that may put some of those community events in jeopardy. So it's just an interesting time. I've been covering uh, religion and spirituality for the Oklahoman for 17 years now, but I have never seen uh, churches suspending in-person gatherings and and worship services like this. I did cover the uh, effects of the H1N1 virus in 2009, and I think the most that churches did, and it was a big thing back then, was they handed out uh, hand sanitizers in in the pews and uh, things like that, but I don't remember uh, churches or houses of worship actually uh, canceling uh, activities. Even when the virus had not yet started spreading rapidly in Oklahoma, the state had already begun to feel the financial impact. We previously spoke with reporter Jack Money on the way the virus and the oil and gas industry decline has been harmful to Oklahoma's state budget. Jack, could you tell us what caused this sudden fall in more detail? And do we have a dollar amount for how much was lost? Well, sure. There were several reasons that we saw the drop that we saw over the past weekend in particular. Um, Commodities markets have been getting weighed upon by concerns about a slowing global economy, um, really, since late last year. Um, So that has been exerting pressure on the value of oil in particular. And and then when you had the coronavirus outbreak in China, those fears were exacerbated because China is one of the bigger consumers of oil out there. So if they're all of a sudden shutting their economy down and not using as much oil, that makes everybody a little bit more nervous. Um, So then we saw, you know, the coronavirus fears expand to Europe. And um, so that exerted a little bit more pressure. Um, Now we're starting to see the virus crop up here in the United States. That was exerting a little bit more pressure. And all of that brought OPEC the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries, and Russia together last week to say, hey, you know, because of all these demand fears, maybe we should uh, not only keep the current production cuts that we agreed to earlier in the year, but, you know, let's, let's expand those, you know, so that we can better support the price. And Russia said, you know what, we're not interested in doing that. In fact, we're going to do exactly the opposite. We're just going to start producing as much oil as we can so that we can capture some market share while prices are so cheap. And the rest of OPEC said, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to do that too. So 
um, now all of a sudden you have a situation where we're producing a whole lot more oil than anybody thinks we can use. And so what we ended up with was a uh, when you look at the price of a barrel of oil on February the 16th, when again a lot of these coronavirus concerns were going around, particularly about China, oil was trading uh, at about, you know, 50 bucks a barrel. Um, today, they're trading for about mm, $33.28 uh, a barrel. That's a 37% drop in the price of oil just, you know, in less than a month, in less than a month. And um, so that's causing, you know, <laughs> real headaches for uh, just about everybody involved in the industry. And what was the second part of that question? You basically answered it, yeah, with okay. the, the amount of, um, you know, the nearly 20, roughly $20 that um, is lower in the cost of a barrel of oil. Yep, that's the that's the biggest drop that that we've seen. You know, they were saying the drop on Monday was the biggest drop that we'd seen since the start of the Great Recession in 2008. And um, you know, I'm I'm not a historical expert on it, um, but we've got to be getting pretty close to seeing the kinds of drops that maybe that commodity experienced whenever we had the big oil bust uh, in Oklahoma um, back in the 1980s. That was a long time ago. Jack, in your stories about this, you didn't mince words. You said this is poised to wreak havoc on Oklahoma's economy. I think when news of this first started to come out, a lot of people's immediate reactions were, this is very, very bad for Oklahoma. In what ways could our state feel pain from this? Well, in a variety of different ways. Um, While the oil and gas industry doesn't um, employ... Uh, a s- significant number of uh, Oklahomans directly. Um, there's a substantially larger population um, that's in business for itself and does a lot of business with the oil and gas industry. Um, so any slowdown that you see in the oil and gas industry is going to have a broader impact on all those entrepreneurs, if you will. Um, and those could be anybody from, you know, people that cater food to people that provide, you know, trash pickup services at well drilling sites. Um, it could just be, you know, any numbers of types of businesses that are out there. And as that sector begins to slow down, you start seeing a reduction in payroll taxes that you're collecting. And then you start seeing a reduction in the amount of you know, uh, excise taxes that you're collecting on motor vehicle sales. Why? Because, you know, these people aren't earning as much and they're not buying as much. And then that translates further out into sales taxes, um, just buying groceries and and fuel taxes, gas. Um, If you don't have any work, you're not going to be driving, so you're not going to be using as much gas. So it, it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. Um, You know, I saw an estimate from the Oklahoma Employment Security Commission uh, for the third quarter of 2019 that showed that the mining industry, which is predominantly oil and gas, uh, was responsible for uh, nearly 25 percent of the gross domestic product for Oklahoma in that quarter, and that was the largest percentage out of any other sector of the economy. So it is a big deal. So... 
Kayla, you've been speaking with lawmakers at the state capitol. What have you heard about the potential impact on state budgets and how they might handle the situation? Yeah, so people are definitely concerned. They're paying a lot of attention. Um, you know, they have said that this will likely impact the upcoming budget, but they're hesitant to get you know too much of um, wrestling up a panic about it. They don't want people to freak out. Uh, though, you know, budget projections were already about eighty five million dollars short uh, earlier in you know, the mid of February, whenever they did um, their first calculations from the Board of Equalization and. Uh, now, you know, there's a good chance that it will be lower, they've said. And, uh, you know, some of the numbers, uh, one of the senators told me, you know, we build our budget on the expectation that oil is going to sell at around $54 a barrel. And so this is a, this is much different than that with it selling, you know, like you said, Jack, about $30, $33 a barrel. So I think they're looking at it as this will definitely have an impact. And in terms of how they are actually handling the situation, you know, some lawmakers have bills about, you know, increasing tax credits for certain things. And they've said, you know, okay, we need to take a look at this. And there's a process lawmakers can can do where they take the title off of a bill, which basically just means that it'll continue going through the process, but they can change it as it does. And so a lot of these tax cut bills are going through with the title off and they're saying, you know, we need to keep looking at this financial situation and see if we can, in fact, cut taxes. And some of them are for good things like um, adoption expenses or creating um, apprenticeship program incentives for for folks. So they're, they're definitely taking a look, but also they're looking at savings. A lot of people have talked about, you know, well, isn't it such a great thing that we've got over a billion dollars in savings so that we can start, you know, pulling from that if we need to, and and hopefully we'll be able to weather this storm. They're looking at increasing the amount of state savings. So they're, they're definitely paying attention and there's a lot of concern. Also, I would interject that that Oklahoma is actually better off than it could be if uh, this price collapse would have happened three months ago. Oh, really? It would have much more significantly impacted the amount of money that legislators would have had to spend in the coming fiscal year than with it happening now because they won't begin to see that really big tail off in gross production tax revenues until they get their May receipts. Right. That's a really good point. And just another a quick fact, they are eligible to tap into rainy day funds now. I think the technical bit is that you have to have um, projected for the next upcoming fiscal year just less money than you had last year, which is already the case. So, Right. So, Jack, is there any end in sight to this downturn? You know, I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, If you asked anybody else that question, they'd answer it exactly the same way. At this point, we don't know. um, You know, one of the big questions out there is is how much pain uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia can stand um, when it comes to, you know, selling oil at a significantly discounted price, um, even above, you know, what uh, the markets are currently showing. Experts disagree, you know, as to how long they'll be able to last. 
you know, in, back in 2014, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia tried to do the same thing that they're trying to do right now. Uh, they tried to capture as much global market share for oil demand as they could by seriously undercutting prices. And, uh, you know, the U.S. oil and gas industry um, outlasted them. Um, but there was a difference between 2014 and today. Um, investors uh, in 2014 were happy, you know, to like, you know, just kind of get a regular dividend from an oil company and, uh, you know, have it concentrate on uh, growing its reserves and growing its production. That was 2014. In 2019, what they're most interested in is getting a return on their investment through free cash that's moving through those companies. So the companies today don't have nearly as deep pockets to try to, you know, compete with Russia and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia as they had in 2014. And that could be a major difference in this fight. Yeah. And, you know, oil and gas, like you said, biggest industry in the state, and it's very volatile. And it seems like any time oil and gas takes a hit, of course, the state does, too. So, you know, just last question, touch a little bit on the conversations that have been had on, you know, should the state government continue to focus on diversifying the economy? And, and can we continue to follow the rise and fall of oil and gas? Or do we need to really move away from being so heavily reliant? Well, to me, um, the better question is, should Oklahoma seriously consider diversifying its uh, revenue stream? Um, you know, uh, I was recalling before I came in here, um, uh, back in the early 1930s, as production had really ramped up from the Seminole and Oklahoma City fields, back then the only source of tax revenue that Oklahoma had was the gross production tax. So imagine, you know, a scenario where the amount of oil that you're producing is just shooting through the roof and there's and you think there's no demand today. Think about what demand was like in 1930. How many people had cars and trucks? You know, far fewer. So there was much less demand. The price of oil got down to literally like five cents a barrel. And this was Oklahoma's only revenue source. They didn't have a sales tax. They didn't have an income tax. It was just gross production tax. And so the governor at the time, uh, I believe it was Governor Murray. Somebody's going to correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, but he, he uh, called up the National Guard and marched them out into those two fields and forced operators to close in their wells, to quit producing oil so that, you know, they could attempt to try to stabilize the price. We're nowhere near that today, but, you know, we need to get creative about how we raise the revenue that we use to run this state. And, um, you know, clearly, uh, I think, you know, oil and gas is going to be around for, you know, certainly longer than I live and probably for as long as the two of you live. Um, but I think as time goes on, we're going to use less and less of it. There's going to be less and less of it produced. And Oklahoma's going to have to figure out, you know, where they can get the revenues to live on um, to be able to keep providing the services that they provide. Um, because oil and gas is not going to be the panacea that it's been in the past. And, um, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. Yeah. 
Well, Jack, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, we yeah. really appreciate your insights. That was great. All right. We have reporter Carmen Foreman on the phone with us to talk about updates at the state capitol, where the state legislature has been in session since February 3rd, but they will have an unknown schedule going forward, especially since someone in the Senate tested positive for COVID-19. Hey guys, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I know there are probably a lot of questions about, you know, what what happens next with the legislature because of coronavirus. Um, and so I don't have a ton of answers at this point, but um, some definitive answers are that, you know, what they're really going to try to focus on now is just the budget. Um, and that's the one thing that they're constitutionally obligated to pass every year um, to fund the government and have a balanced budget. Um, and so I think what we'll see is that a lot of the bills, a lot of the legislation that they spent working on the past couple months and getting out of committee and passing each chamber or a chamber, um, I think that's really secondary at this point, and that's all going to fall to the wayside. And they're really just going to focus on what is the most important thing that they need to do to be there in basically the least amount of time. Um, And for them, that's pass a budget. And uh, part of the reason for that is because, well, you know, this isn't me saying this, but this is the CDC saying this, that it's not safe for large gatherings of people to meet. And both the House and the Senate are above the, you know, gatherings of 10 people, uh, of which, you know, the CDC is advised against large groups of people getting together. Um, and so what the house did this week is they passed, um, legislation to grant proxy votes, one vote to the house Republican caucus and one vote to the house democratic caucus. Um, and so that way they don't need, you know, a quorum of a hundred people to vote, or they don't need, you know, a majority of those hundred people to pass a state budget. Instead, they can have effectively two people there, one from the house Republican caucus and one from the house democratic caucus to pass the budget if need be. Um, now, the Senate did not take up the same rule, but um, as you may have noticed, um, a Senate staffer tested positive for COVID-19, and then about 30 other members of the Senate, and so that I, I would say that some lawmakers, some Senate lawmakers, and some staffers were then tested for the virus, Um we don't have any results on if any other tests came back positive, but I think what we might see after that is, one, the Senate is going to get a deep cleaning the rest of this week. Um, I this, The Senate is out for the end of the week. Um, that's partly because of spring break and partly because of what happened this week and what's going on internationally. Um, but so the Senate will get a deep cleaning and then I wouldn't be surprised if the Senate came back and voted on a similar sort of rule to allow proxy voting in the Senate. Because, you know, when the Senate 
decided not to take a, up a proxy rule. The CDC had basically said, you know, oh, well, we advise against gatherings of 50 or more people. And at the time, the Senate, you know, was only 48 members. So they thought, okay, well, you know, we're still in line with the CDC guidelines. But everything is changing so quickly. Um, so now that they're they're not exactly within those guidelines anymore. Um, so I think you're not going to see a lot of lawmakers at the Capitol the rest of this session. Um, I think the session will be kind of quick. Um, and the public can still see what lawmakers are doing. Um, I th- if you remember earlier this week, uh, the House and Senate majority and minority leaders all agreed to close the state capitol to the public to make it safer, um, to prevent large gatherings of people, to prevent tour groups from coming there. So now it's only open to legislators, press, um, certain state officials, um, and then certain state employees that might be invited by, say, a lawmaker or whatever. Um, And that is you know, by design. It's by design to keep people safer. It's to keep the lawmakers safe. Um, it's to keep the public safe. But, you know, the public can still watch online. If you go to oklegislature.gov, you can still live stream. If there are any committee meetings, you can live stream the floor sessions. If and when the state lawmakers take up a budget, you can watch that on the live stream. So, um, yes, they'll still be in the building, and I imagine that lobbyists will still have the ears of lawmakers. Um, they'll just have to get them on the phone as opposed to, you know, pulling them off the floor or pulling them aside between meetings. So, yeah, that's the look at the Capitol. Um, I'm sure things will change going forward because everything is changing so quickly at this point. Social distancing, which focuses on avoiding groups and staying home as much as possible, is a key way public health officials have encouraged communities to halt the spread of the virus. But for people experiencing homelessness and the social service agencies dedicated to helping at-risk populations, those tips are causing serious problems. Kayla and reporter Bill Crum will go into more detail. By definition, people who are experiencing homelessness don't have a home to go to so that they can self-isolate or be socially distant from others. And that is especially true with people who are staying in shelters or they're going to food sites for meals. Those are large congregation areas where you're going to have hundreds of people um, in one building. And so it can be difficult in those types of environments to stop the spread of COVID-19. And how some of the homeless service providers in those arenas are uh, responding, you know, they're pushing beds further apart, or maybe they're putting up screens in between beds. And if you've ever seen inside of a homeless shelter, those beds are just bunk beds that you might imagine uh, at a campsite. I know at the day shelter, the director, Dan Strawn, was telling me that they have modified the way that they're serving meals. So now instead of everybody coming inside and getting to relax and have a meal and 
in the morning from 6 to 8 a.m., you're allowed to have 10 people come in at a time. They wash their hands. They get a hygiene kit. They check their mail if they've got any. They get a meal, and they're sent out the door so that the next 10 can come in. But another side of that coin is that if you are a person who's considered unsheltered or uh, you know, you're living out on the street or in a, an encampment somewhere, um, you're a person who isn't going to have a lot of income. You're not going to restaurants or to movies. So you're, you're kind of isolated economically from, from folks already. Um, and so the real stressor for those folks is going to be, you know, volunteers or caseworkers that are coming out um, to serve them. And they could potentially be exposed that way. They could put folks who are unsheltered at a higher risk. And that was something I found really interesting that those people are really already isolated and that they are struggling, you know, Uh, and some key issues that we see going forward is going to be funding for service providers. You know, it's costing a lot of money to buy extra cleaning supplies or, um, you know, gloves and masks and those types of uh, protective equipment. And they're not having volunteers come in for that same reason of, you know, wanting to flatten the curve and keep the spread as low as possible and within the population of folks experiencing homelessness and in the service provider population as well. And instead, they're having staff either try and double up on duties or they're just foregoing those duties. And then at the same time, They are having to stretch resources like many businesses are to cover folks who maybe are sick and need to stay home for a couple of weeks. Um, Dan Strawn again mentioned a a bill that President Trump just signed that talks about administrative paid leave. And Strawn had mentioned that it it maybe extends that up to 10 weeks of paid leave. And he said that's going to be really difficult. And do you have the funds to pay someone who is not at work and also hire someone to redo that job while they're gone? Or do you just pay that person on administrative leave and and forego um, their job description? So that's some of the things that the service providers are wrestling with. But in terms of the folks experiencing homelessness, they are a key high risk population. A lot of these people are struggling with um, addiction issues, with mental health issues, and they usually have other serious chronic issues with their health as well. And so they would fall into that category of high risk. A lot of them are also older and some of them are veterans. So it's it's definitely a, a population that uh, needs to have some serious uh, help from the public, but you can't do that in the traditional ways. And the public can really be donating some of the key resources that we know a lot of people are talking about, like hand sanitizer, gloves, masks. If you can find those things, if you have those things and you want to help, donate that to a shelter because they are trying to get as much of those resources as they can. They're also taking monetary donations. Like I was just saying, the finances are going to be a big struggle going forward. And so anything the public can do in those two arenas, it's going to be really, really helpful. And, and then just knowing that It's important to be kind to one another and to reach out to those that you know um, are struggling or who are providing these services and and let them know that um, you appreciate what they're doing for the greater good of the community. Well, it's springtime, and this is the time of year when nonprofits 
many nonprofits hold fundraising events, galas, dinners, and, and these are popular social events. They uh, are, in the words of uh, Marnie Taylor, who is the uh, president and CEO of the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits, they're stacked one on top of the other throughout February, March, and April. Many of uh, the organizations that hold the events, these events, are um, having to cancel or postpone them. The organizations uh, are limited in um, the option in their options, really, for uh, how they can handle this the situation. Uh, Certainly, uh, for those, if if there are any that would actually have be having events on uh, on city property, uh, those gatherings have been prohibited by emergency order of the mayor through April twelfth, and that possibly could be extended beyond that. We we really don't know how this is going to go at this point. The foundation for Oklahoma City Public Schools has uh, decided to do their annual spring fundraiser, which is called the All Hands Raised, virtually. Uh, they had planned it uh, as a luncheon event on, uh, I believe, is March 26th. And yes, and Instead, they're going to uh, have a uh, condensed program that they'll live stream and and then will also have available on their website for people to uh, uh, attend, quote unquote, uh, later if they would like. And they are hoping that they'll uh, be able to maintain the momentum that uh, they get from that event every spring uh last year it raised one hundred and one thousand dollars it's not a make or break event amount for the foundation but mary malone who's the president and ceo said that uh it is an amount that is difficult to make up in any other way during the year in terms of long-term impact it's uh it's difficult to say right now uh there are in Oklahoma, according to the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits, 5,252 organizations that uh, report income each year to the federal government, to the IRS, and they receive $12.8 billion in revenue. So uh, it's quite a bit, and that excludes, for the most part, churches, which obviously uh, are nonprofit. And, uh, and bring in lots of revenue and do lots of good work throughout the year. Uh, nonprofits do fantastic work. Knowing how this might all play out at this point is, is really difficult to say, but I think that uh, Rachel Freeman at City Care here in Oklahoma City perhaps expressed as well as, as anybody did in the nonprofit community what they're hoping and she said if your organization has to cancel its fundraising event it's important for people to get together and share their common interests 
but she said, uh, if you can't do that this spring because of the coronavirus and the emergency measures that are being taken, donate anyway, she said. Advocate anyway. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in The Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back Friday for a new episode.